So tonight I thought we could talk about the direct path. So there's basically two choices. One is the progressive path and one is the direct path. The progressive path are um, what most people in spirituality are engaged in. Um, and the progressive path has to do with uh, what's needed is to uh, improve myself, fix my faults, you know, undo my karma, uh, earn grace. You know, so it has to do with a gradual sort of improvement of me, this, this body-mind structure, um, until at some point, hopefully, I will be qualified to be enlightened. I'll become worthy um, and therefore uh, have entered the probabilities of, of waking up at some point. And we might envision this as sort of a lifelong process. Maybe we think in terms of lifetimes, 10 lifetimes, 100 lifetimes. You know, we're, we know we're good for it. We're on the path and, um, you know, we'll, we'll work our way there. So this is the progressive path. So by this, um, uh, I mean many of the practices that are um, used in spirituality. Um, I mean yoga, um, mantra, chanting, visualizations, meditation, changing one's diet, you know, trying to become a better person, trying to become more loving, more generous, more selfless. So all of these are um, effortful practices um, with the hope that that it will, you know, sort of upgrade my my being, you know, sort of get me in the, the ballpark of being eligible for um, however we describe it. Maybe it's uh, just um, abiding happiness, maybe it's peace of mind, maybe it's awakening, however we might define it. So, and all of these practices have, have merit, right? They're all useful, um, and they are uh, all have to do with uh, becoming more attentive to how this body-mind functions. So, um, this has value. It has physiological value. It has value in terms of settling our mind, um, sort of keeping it from racing off on every little daily drama. Uh, so this has, they, they all have benefit. So the one um, practice that can be considered pro a progressive practice, meditation, um, you might notice on our retreats, we uh, do a lot of meditation, uh, just silent sitting. Uh, and the, the difference is that we don't talk about it as an attempt to achieve a particular state, right? To, to attempt to use that time of silent sitting or meditation to change our, uh, our state of awareness, state of consciousness, let's say, um, is, uh, is effortful, right? We're trying to go from here to there 
where I am when I sat down to where I hope to be during the next 30, 40 minutes. But this, this isn't how we recommend doing meditation in, in the retreats that we have here. It's really just to allow whatever arises to arise and to remain present for that. Um, and that, that could be considered a form of mindfulness, um, except uh, what I would encourage people to do is really step back from the objects that we're being mindful of to what's being aware of whatever objects may be rising. So as I see it, the, the primary purpose of uh, meditation is to recognize that we're not in control of our thinking mind. And um, most of us have the opportunity to recognize that the first time we ever sit down to meditate. It's like, oh my gosh, it has a mind of its own. It just sort of runs on and, um, you know, despite my best attempts to control it, there it is. And it's thinking things that I don't want to think. And it's not thinking all those spiritual things that I, that I do want it to think. Um, and so that's, that's a great uh, instructional value that we're not actually in charge of what the mind produces. You know, I'm not saying that if, you know, if we're at work and have a, a logical thing that we can't stay with that for, you know, sometimes for hours at a time, that's beautiful. Or if we're engaged in uh, some activity that we really enjoy, maybe art or music or, um, you know, even interacting with friends, we're fully engaged with that. We can do that for extended periods. But when we're left to our own devices, when nothing else is happening in the room, and um, we realize that the mind will continue to think even when it's not necessary. So this is good information um, because we can, if we are willing to relinquish the idea that the spiritual path is about controlling the mind, it can save us an enormous amount of time. There's several things that, um, you know, in, in trying to improve ourselves to become more worthy, um, you know, we can change our clothes, we can change our diet, we might change our friends, we can try to be nicer people, become more compassionate, more loving. That's, a, that's all nice. Um, but if we're, if we're holding the idea that if I, if I improve that to a degree, then that somehow will eventually I'll get compassionate enough and loving enough that I will awaken. That is almost never true. Fortunately, um, one of the things that um, Adi Ashanti talks about is the um, path of failure, right? Trying, I mean, his one of his um, practices was intense meditation, hours and hours a day, and um, and it finally it finally broke him to the point that he was willing to ask, "I wonder who it is that's meditating," and that's that's when his whole direction of his journey changed because it changed from um, trying to achieve a particular goal to, to looking at what, what was already present. So if we're talking about um, the direct path, it is 
about what is awake already. I mean, if we're talking about our essential being, by essential I mean that which couldn't be absent. If it were absent for a split second, we'd evaporate. Right? That kind of essential. So if it's if what we're seeking to discover, to recognize, not to attain, not to go from here from A to Z, but just to recognize what's already here. Um, it doesn't require a peak experience. Peak experiences are lovely, but what is essential must be present at all moments, not just occasionally at certain peak moments. Peak moments are beautiful, right? But then there's all those other moments, you know, life's ordinary moments, life's challenges, and then some beautiful moments as well. So the question is, what remains for all of that, all of those moments? If it's essential, it must be present in all moments. If it's essential, it must be present in this moment, in, in your direct experience. It couldn't, couldn't be absent. So the question is, it's a matter of discovery, almost remembrance. It's not about perfecting this body-mind. Like I said, all of these um, practices that I named earlier are, are beautiful practices. They can really um, allow us to become much more sensitive to uh, how this body functions, how, uh, how we speak, how we think. All of that's wonderful. All of it has value. Um, and it may help us to um, sort of uh, narrow the investigation enough that we can get a clear look at it. That may be helpful. But at some point, um, rather than to continue to try to perfect the vehicle, you know, this body-mind, um, is to see what it, what's actually present all along. Not only present, but not requiring any improvement. <laughs> Already complete. Right? So we can see any um, argument that we may have about, yes, I can sense into this awareness, but whatever follows the but is our resistance. You know, yes, I can sense this awareness, but I still have doubts. Yes, I can sense this awareness being present, but, you know, I still have these flaws that clearly aren't acceptable. But whatever follows the but is how how we resist allowing the recognition of this awareness um, as being absolutely fundamental, singularly so, 
to our existence. So the drift path is just is just the recognition of what is already the case. That's why it's called the direct path. It's not even a path because we're not going even from A to B. We're going from A to A, you know, just seeing what's already the case. And we, we might even have a glimpse of that and reject it. We can reject it, you know, for all kinds of reasons, like, well, it couldn't be that easy. You know, or if it were that easy, how special could it be? Or if it were that were the case, well, everybody would see it. And that's how we miss it. It's so, um, so intimate, not even intimate, because it's not other than what we are. So, and when we try to uh, whatever practice we choose to do is a detour to get there. Because if, we, let's say we, we think, okay, what, what I need to do is, I've heard that, um, you know, being enlightened is, is uh, there's a sense of selflessness, selfless service, right? And so what I'll do to, to get there is to try to practice being selfless. But what it is, it's this, it's the belief in me, this sense of personal self trying to, trying to act selfless. Why? <laughs> so I can get enlightened, right? So there's actually, it's not selfless at all. It's like, well, I've got an ulterior purpose to it. It's like, I'll, I'll be selfless, but I really want something in return, namely, Perpetual bliss, enlightenment, abiding happiness. But what we what we wake up from is the idea that there is a personal self. Right? When we wake up from that idea of just recognizing that this whole belief structure that we hold about who I am, that self, that is the false identity. Not bad. It's just not actually, truly who we are. It's, it's, it's what has occurred to this, this structure, this body-mind structure. And that's okay. But what we truly are is not dependent on that. It's what's aware of it. You know, we can do the same thing. Maybe we've heard that, um, you know, in, you know, if we were enlightened, we wouldn't have preferences. Right? It's not like, you know, we wouldn't prefer this food over that food, or we wouldn't, you know, prefer a pat on the back to a blow to the head. But, um, you know, sort of being okay with whatever happens and being willing to experience whatever life dishes up for us. So that's that's really what no preferences mean. But when we try to do, try really hard not to have preferences in order to, as a means to become enlightened, then we're putting the cart before the horse. It's really a byproduct of waking up to our true nature rather than a means to get there. Right, so we can't try to not prefer things really, really hard in order 
to wake up. <laughs> it's a nice practice, but it's um, it doesn't actually work that way. Wake up first, and then and then see what how much remains in terms of preferences or in terms of um, you know this sense of self selfless action. You know, so a lot of these things that are um, are the consequences of recognizing our true nature. They're not a means to get there. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't require a practice to get there. It requires a willingness to recognize um, what's already present. Well, easy. Easy, except that the mind doesn't like easy. Mind likes complicated things. You know, give me give me the ten steps. I don't care if it takes thirty years. I'm up for it. Right. But that's that's the mind wanting to stay in charge, wanting to stay in control. You know, I've got this spiritual practice figured out. You know, I I know how it works, and I'm willing to put in the time. Again, one of the benefits of meditation, all, all these stories that we tell ourselves, we can really question because the stories, not so much the stories that run through our heads, not a problem. What is a problem is the stories that run through our head that we believe are true. Those are the ones that cause us trouble, especially the really subtle ones, you know, especially the ones we really like, those. Those are the ones that are problematic. So this is the opportunity is to really, it's not that these um, progressive um, practices are wrong or, or, I mean, they're beautiful practices, no problem, no problem even continuing to do them. It's good for the body, it's good for the mind, it's good, it's, uh, it's a worthy, worthy way to spend time. But don't take them as a means that those are a necessary means in order to awaken. The awaken is a, is a totally different, what needs to be relinquished is um, all our certainties, all our beliefs about how the world works and who I am and being willing to let all of that go. And what remains is this um, beautiful, spacious, aware, capacity that's been there all along.